This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. This morning, I want to talk to you about being misinformed. Um, I'm going to share a story that I think I heard first from Pastor Mike. But how many of you have one of these, a cell phone? Most all of you, yeah. Um, How many of you are aware that there was a time in our history when these didn't exist? Yeah, yeah, some of you. Um, How many of you have a TV? Yeah, also a time when those didn't exist. So I want you to imagine life without a cell phone or a TV. Some of the students have already died in their minds. Um, But before before cell phones and TVs, um, one of the primary or two of the primary ways people got information were newspapers and radios. Um, And I didn't actually have an operational one of these in my home. My parents had a radio with a dial on it, but like, have y'all ever seen the big wooden cabinet radios that were like beautiful, like works of art, the big dial that you change the channels on. So imagine like that's how you get your news or that's how you get your entertainment, your family, you, you gather around, you can't replay that stuff. So if you miss it, you miss it. Um, And I believe it was 1938, CBS broadcast over the radio, and they did this fake news broadcast where they were taking Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, and they were doing this fake news broadcast like uh, aliens were really attacking the Earth. And if, if you've heard this story before, um, and it, like people freaked out as they heard it. And there were, there were reminders that this was theatrical, but as they were listening to it, it sounds like a real broadcast and people kind of lost their minds, um, which this story feels especially fitting since the Pentagon came out and said UFOs are real or whatever recently. Um, but people were supposedly like running out in the streets and, and losing their minds over aliens. Aliens are attacking us. Um, and, and that story has continued to be, to be told. Those people were clearly misinformed. If they weren't listening to the whole broadcast, listening only to a portion of it, they may have been convinced that this was, this was news. It, it came on like an interruption. Um, so people were misinformed. And this morning I want to talk about what happens when we're misinformed about who God is. When, when we miss who God is, when we, when we miss his heart specifically. Um, and in a couple weeks, Pastor Mike is going to preach on the prodigal son. And I love that parable. I'm so excited about that. Like that parable gives us such a beautiful picture of the heart of God. I'm excited about that. And so this morning I want to talk about what happens when we, we miss the heart of God. Um, and when we do that, it hurts. It hurts everyone. It hurts us. It hurts others. And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 34 this morning. So if you want to turn there, um, if you're visiting here, you don't have a Bible of your own. Uh, there should be one in the little rack under your chair or in one of the chairs around you. And Exodus 34 is on page 111 in those Bibles. Um, so we're going to be in Exodus 34. As you're going there, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. So we're talking about uh, the nation of Israel, which was God's people. Uh, who started with one man and his wife. God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to make him into a great nation. He was going to give him a promised land. And then that nation, his family grew. And over time, they became enslaved in Egypt. And the Egyptians enslaved them for 400 years. So generations of people lived and died in slavery in Egypt as a part of the nation of Israel. And God miraculously delivered them out of Egypt. He brought them out by these crazy miracles. If you've heard of some of them before, where he turned the Nile to blood and frogs overran the place and flies and gnats and locusts, like 
lots of crazy things happened. Um, and that kind of culminated with God parting the Red Sea and the, the nation walking across on dry, dry ground and then the sea collapsing in on the Egyptians who were in pursuit of them. And so this people saw God's mighty hand doing incredible things, un- unbelievable things. And then they traveled through the wilderness because they have no home now. They're camping and they make their way to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they meet God. He descends. His presence is there with them. And so when he descends on this mountain, there's clouds, this black cloud and smoke and fire and lightning and thunder. And the people, about a million people are gathered at the base of this mountain and they're terrified. The presence of God is there and they're terrified. And so they tell Moses, Moses, like, we don't want to talk to God. We want you to talk to him and you can tell us what he says. So Moses goes into the presence of God. But remember, it's this crazy, intimidating thunderstorm that has descended on the mountain. And so once Moses gets in there, it doesn't say how much time passed. But pretty quickly, they looked at Moses's brother, Aaron, um, and they were like, yo, that guy's probably dead. Like, He's out. We need gods to go before us. And Aaron, sometimes I'm sad that Aaron is my namesake because of this. <laughs> Thanks, Mom and Dad. Um, but it's also a good reminder that we are not defined by our biggest mistakes or by, or by our failures. So Aaron gives in to their pressure. He asks for their gold. He melts it down, and he makes this golden calf for them. And he's, he's behold, Israel, these are your gods uh, who led you out of Egypt. And so the, the people... I didn't mention this, but the people had been given the Ten Commandments from God. And the first one is to have no other gods before him. And the second one is not to create any idols or graven images. So they just heard that. They just experienced these crazy miracles that God performed for them. And then they immediately turned from him and said, give us our golden calf. Give, it, give us our gods. And then God re- responds in that. He tells Moses, I'm not, I'm not going with you. I made the promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you the land, but I'm going to send an angel before you. I'm not going. And if you read chapter 33 of Exodus, there's this conversation Moses is having with God where Moses says, if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. Don't, don't even bring us up from this place if you're not coming. And so the Lord says, I am going to go with you. And then in that conversation, Moses asks God if he can see his glory. And God says, I'll make my goodness pass before you, which is interesting. Moses asked to see God's glory. God says, I'll make my goodness pass before you. God's goodness and his glory are closely connected, which is a separate point from what we're talking about. But that next day, Moses goes up on the mountain into that storm again, and he meets God there. God hides him in the rock so that he's not consumed by him. And God turns his back, lets Moses see the back of God. And the words we're about to read are the words that God spoke to Moses in that context, in that setting. And I don't want to like put more weight on one portion of scripture over another. But remember that this is God talking about himself when we read these verses. So this is Exodus chapter 34, verses six through seven. And it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. And when you see Lord in all caps, as Pastor Mike has reminded us over and over again, that is the the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means I am. It's God's name. So God's saying, I am, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And I just, I want you to remember that context. Israel, God's people had just seen him do these wildly miraculous things and then immediately rejected him. And then 
These, this is how God describes himself in the aftermath of that. I don't know how many of you have kids, but when your kids immediately disobey something that you said, I know this is not how I would describe myself in that moment. When I said, don't do that. And then they did that. Like I'm not merciful and gracious and then abounding in steadfast love. But that is the way God describes himself right here. And we're going to get back to this passage, but there's a danger when we project ourselves onto God and we, we think God's going to act in the way that we act. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Gentle and Lowly, and it's actually the book that I gave our graduates this morning. It's written by a man named Dane Ortland, and I can't recommend it enough to you. Uh, this sermon was kind of born out of me wrestling with that book. And um, in it, one of the things he talks about is God's natural work versus God's strange work. And he's, he argues that God's natural work is to be merciful and gracious. That's the thing he wants to do the most, is to show mercy and be gracious and, and love. And then his strange work, which is a part of what he does, but it's not the thing that he most desires to do, is to exact justice. So he doesn't take pleasure in our judgment. He's going to bring judgment, but he's not taking pleasure in that. And I can tell you as a human being and as a father, when there are times when my kids get consequences and I take pleasure in that because I'm like, <laughs> I done told you, but that is not the heart of God. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm a sinful man. If you don't know that already, which is why. I'm trying to point you to the Lord. Um, God doesn't take pleasure in our, ju in our judgment. So the, the whole book is just arguing that we flip it. We think that God's uh, natural work is his judgment and his strange work is his mercy. And he's trying to say, man, that picture we get in scripture is the, the opposite of that. And this, this matters because it changes the way we see God and then it changes the way we see the world because as Christians, we're supposed to reflect God in the world. And it's important for us to consider the damage when we don't get, get God's heart right, uh, when we miss the heart of God. So rather than reflecting his natural work and the, the way he describes himself at the beginning of this passage in verse 6, we, the, as the church, if you've been in the church or around the church for a while, you've seen or maybe experienced firsthand the way that Christians actually uh, reflect God's strange work or his judgment on the world rather than his, his love and his mercy. When, when we're judgmental and hold grudges against people and then we end up holding grudges against their family, against generations of people, that family's messed up. I know, I know you hadn't been around here long, but you don't know that family over there. Like that kind of stuff, that's not from the Lord and we've got to reject it. Um, if you want to know why young people are leaving the evangelical church, I think that this issue is tied closely to that. Too many Christians, myself included, are harsh and strict and unloving, unkind. And this is hurting the witness of the gospel and the health of the church. It damages our relationships with one another. It damages our relationship with ourself. Uh, if we view God primarily as holy judge, so then missing his mercy and grace, then we're going to beat up on ourselves and our sin. And we're going to just bear that shame on our shoulders like this, this crushing, soul crushing weight. That, that burden feels too heavy. Like, I know God loves me because God loves everybody, but I've done these horrible things. He only loves me because he has to love me. And that is so not true. God's love for you is not begrudging or obligatory. 
So we think to ourselves, how could God love me or how could he forgive me again for stumbling in that same sin over and over again? And when we do that, when we view God that way and we live in that shame, our own hearts start to grow cold and hard towards the Lord. And if that's you, I just I want to remind you that God is merciful and gracious. And then also, when we view God as mainly judge, we start to view others in that same way. And I've lived both of these things where I've just beat myself up and and carried the shame of my sin uh, unnecessarily. Um, And also, like, I've viewed God so much as judge and judgmental over my own sin that I'm then judgmental of other people, like harshly and unnecessarily so. Because if God's going to be judgmental of me and God's judgmental, then I've got to make sure that everybody else is being judged more harshly. For me to feel good about myself, I've got to make sure they sin more than me or worse than me or whatever. So then that becomes my my demeanor. this month is, is Pride Month, if you don't already know that. And while the scripture does not affirm homosexuality, the scriptures are clear that homosexuality is sin. But the way that the evangelical church has responded to the, this community of people should horrify us. Because we have not been kind or gracious or loving to them. Rather than introducing them to a merciful God who loves and forgives them, we've shown them an angry judge who throws the book at them. And we, we need to repent of that personally and corporately. And I, I appreciate our pastor for reminding, of, reminding us of that regularly. But um, this community is not the only one who suffered at the hands of angry religious people, self-righteous religious people. If you read the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see just how self-righteous and how much abuse comes out of uh, self-righteous religious people. The Pharisees, the way Jesus talked to them and about them, you see the, the poor and impoverished, the broken and hurting were outcasts. And they were used and abused by this, these religious people to, to uphold a system where the Pharisees are then made to feel good about themselves at the expense of everyone else. And Jesus refers to them as, as whitewashed tombs. Like you, you do the right things on the outside, but you are dead and you stink on the inside. And th- this week I read about a conversation between um, some pastors uh, and, and I'm not going to name names, but I read this conversation. Um, it's not anybody that we know personally, but um, in the conversation, the, the issue of abortion came up. And one of these pastors was arguing that uh, as a church, as Christians, we need to fight our enemy, the devil, on two fronts when it comes to abortion. The first one is we need to convince people that choosing to, to kill a child in the womb is not a choice. We need, to, we need to remind people that we need to, to fight for life and pursue life. And he said the other way that we need to fight against the enemy on the issue of abortion is that we need to remind women who have had abortions that they are not uh, broken and unworthy of God's love, but they are able to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus and brought into his family, and, and they shouldn't live in shame from that. And when he said that, one of these pastors responded and said, such women should live in shame. That, that can't be, that can't be us. That is not the heart of God. That is not the way that we need to live. We, we need to reject that. I don't know your history. I don't know the things that you have done, but the Lord knows all of them. And he loves you 
and he is merciful and gracious towards you still. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So if you have had an abortion or, or counseled somebody to do that, or if you struggle with same-sex attraction, or if you're wrestling with a porn addiction, or if you're just an angry, bitter, judgy person, God knows, he sees, and he loves you still. And he forgives transgressions and sin. When we miss the heart of God, it hurts everyone, including ourselves. If we're not loving people in their sin, then we're not reflecting the heart of God in the world. So when I say loving people in their sin, I don't mean making excuses for their sin. I don't mean saying that their sin is okay. But if we're not able to love people who are actively sinning, then we're not reflecting the heart of God in the world. Because we are told in Scripture that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's right, man. So when, we, when we're thinking through how we think about God and about God's heart, we need to consider, we've considered the damage. We need to consider the source. Who or what is shaping your view of God and of others? Because if it's anything other than God and his word, there's going to be an agenda behind it. Like I, I'm, I want to be faithful to the scriptures and, and sharing them with you, but I am a human, sinful, broken man, as I've already made clear. Um, and the longer you're around here, I'll make that more clear to you. Uh, I mess up. And at times I'm going, to be, I'm going to be messed up in my understanding and I'm going to do my best to share the scriptures to you and be faithful to them. But you need to be reading them and studying them yourself so that you can hold me accountable and you can make sure that I'm not twisting this and sharing something that isn't true. And you need to do the same for Pastor Mike, for Pastor Richard, all of our Sunday school teachers. You need to be in the word yourselves learning. Uh, I mentioned that 1938 radio broadcast, uh, the War of the Worlds and this fake news um, so in preparation for this, I found something else out about that. At the time of that broadcast, uh, radios were fairly new, like they'd become more widespread and news started to broadcast over the radio. And there was a competition between uh, the radio and the newspaper. So newspapers were losing revenue and funding to the, new, or to the radio. So when the radio reported this, had this fake broadcast, the newspapers maybe overemphasized the panic a little bit. Told people it was a bigger deal than it was because they needed to make people not trust the radio so they would keep buying the newspaper. That's a news source. They're supposed to tell us the truth. Hey, there's always going to be an agenda behind that. Um, and if you look at the history, there were no suicides linked to that account. There was no hospitalization specifically linked to that, that broadcast. There were eyewitnesses who said, hey, I was out in the streets. I didn't see anybody freaking out. And, and it, uh, there was panic somewhere, but we need to make sure that we're paying attention to the, the information coming into us and considering the source. Because CBS, who aired that, still talks about it they, as a part of their history. But that's because it's an interesting story and they get more attention from it. There's a motive behind it. People always have an agenda. The, the, the news is driven by fear and anger. If they can make you afraid and they can make you angry, then they'll get you to continue watching or continue consuming. And I, I don't want you to be fooled because that stuff is shaping your heart. The information you are bringing into your mind is shaping your heart towards the world, towards God, towards people. And we got to be careful about, about the sources that we're, we're listening to and learning from. I remember being a kid and listening to people freak out about rap music and how dangerous it was. It was going to twist the minds of our young people. There's so much hatred and violence in that stuff. 
But now some of those same people are constantly filling their minds with this hatred coming up from a news station and don't see that it's doing the same thing to their minds. They were trying to warn us that, that this violent music was going to do when we were kids. The stuff you're thinking about and bringing into your head matters. We want to reflect the heart of God in the world and we need to pay attention to our, our sources of information. If we aren't loving people in their sin, then we're not reflecting the heart of God in the world. So if you want to know the heart of God, as I mentioned, we need to be in his word. And if you struggle to do that or don't know how to do that, we want to help you. Like we would love to study the scriptures with you. There are people in this room who would love to study the scriptures with you and just show you how they study them themselves. On Thursday night, uh, our worship leader, Mike Brooks, and I meet here at the church from 7 to 8 o'clock. We read a chapter out of the Gospel of John. We walk through the steps of this Bible study method together. And anybody, there are some other men in the church who've come and been a part of that. Uh, but anybody who would like to participate in that, we would love to have you. Thursdays from 7 to 8, you can find me after our gathering. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. I know Pastor Mike would love to do the same. Pastor Richard would do the same. We have... Other, other men and women in the church who would love to read and study the scriptures with you. And as you're learning from people, as you're listening to people who are telling you about who God is, make sure you're also examining their lives. Like nobody's going to be perfect. We're going to mess up. But if you're learning about God from somebody who doesn't seem like they love other people, something is disconnected and broken in that. And maybe listen to somebody else. And we also need to be careful that we aren't listening to people who only focus on one part of God, like the, his love and his desire to bless you. I, I don't like to call names, but if you are listening to Joel Osteen preach, you need to stop. Amen. He's got a great smile, fancy suits, big fat church. But that man talks about Jesus and God in a way that is not true. God does want to bless you. But he wants to bless you by bringing you into relationship with him and spending eternity with you in glory, not by just giving you prosperity and health here in this life. There are believers all around the world who Joel Osteen's message is an, is an offense to them because when they stand up for the name of Jesus, they are hung or killed or they will kill their family members in front of them to try to get them to reject him. Like, we need to reject prosperity gospel. We need to re reject lies about God. So we need... To consider the source and consider the truth. So in verse 6, as God leads off with this description of himself, again, I'm going to keep reading this and saying this because we need to remember it. This is who God is. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is merciful and gracious to everyone. All people, all sinners on the earth, he is merciful and gracious to them. The heart of God is merciful and gracious. Now, I've said that a lot, and I know some of you in your head already are like, Aaron, you need to be careful because you're talking a little too much about the love of God. Like, there's another part to this. We're, we're getting there. Um, I'm not minimizing sin or its consequences. Because when we reject God, when we reject his rule, his authority over, it, over us, when we reject his heart, the result of that is death. Physical death and spiritual death. We'll be separated from God forever in a place called hell. Separated from God, from the, the source of life, the source of all that is good. That's what the scriptures teach us. Our sin sends us in that direction, away from God. And God clearly says in verse 7 that he's going to deal with sin. He's not going to let it slide. Because in, as he's talking about himself in verse 7, he says, Who will by no means clear the guilty? God is not a pushover, unlike my wife whenever my son cracks a joke in the middle of a consequence. Sorry. <clears throat> you shouldn't throw shade at your wife from the pulpit. 
uh, well, I ran that joke by her before I shared it. Uh, but her son, for some reason, he's especially funny like when he's getting in trouble. Um, and Jenna normally is the one who keeps our kids in line. So when she breaks, it, like, it makes me feel better about myself because I'm weak. Um, anyway. God is not a pushover. He's going to deal with sin. He has to. If he didn't deal with sin, he would be unjust. And so our, our sin will either be taken care of at the cross or we'll experience separation from him for eternity in a place called hell. And it, sometimes when you think about that reality, the thought pops into your head. If that's true, how can God really be merciful and loving and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Because he made a way to take our guilt from us. He sent Jesus into the world. God has existed forever as the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is three in one. And the Son came and put on flesh and lived a sinless life in our place and died the death that we deserve. And that he rose from the grave to prove everything that he said to be true. He ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God and he is coming back one day to call his people to himself and make all wrong things right. He, God made a way to take our guilt from us through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God does not clear the guilty, but because of His love and mercy, He offers a way for our guilt to be transferred onto Jesus, onto Himself. He's willing to pay our debt. He's willing to pay your debt for your rejection of him, for my rejection of him. And who does that? Who, who forgives in that way? What love is this? He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Or maybe your translation says to the thousandth generation. As we sing this morning, God's love and mercy are vast. And whether you're considering that for the first time or the 10,000th time, I pray that your response is the same, that you would repent of your sin and believe in the good news of Jesus. You, you are saved. You're made a child of God the first time that you believe that. But then you need to preach that to yourself every single day of your life, not to be resaved, but so that you fall deeper in love with God and you have an increased desire to walk in obedience to the way that he's called us to live so that we can live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Repenting is, is a change of mind. A cha change your mind about your sin. See your sin as, as disgusting and worthy of rejection and change your mind about God and see him not as a judge, but as the one who made you and loves you and is worthy of your obedience and your praise and of all of your life. I want to encourage you to do that today. And, and you may have time to wait if you've never done that. You may have more days on this earth and you also may not. We, we don't know what tomorrow brings for, for any of us. And there's another reason, believer, for you to repent of your sin now rather than continuing to play with it or pocket it or keep it in secret. In verse 7, God says that he will visit iniquity or sin and its consequences. He'll visit iniquity on fathers and on children and on children's children to the third and fourth generation. Your sin is not just affecting you. No matter how secret you think it is, it's not just affecting you. 
You'll see it ripple through families. If you sit down and just try to think about the generational sins in your own family, you'll probably be able to identify some that your grandfather had, that your father had, that then you display as well. Our sins ripple through our, our communities and through our families. You, you may have more days on this earth, but be quick to repent so that the damage of your sin to, uh, amongst others is less. So look at the heart of God for you and then repent and believe the gospel. And then lastly, let's consider the impact of this because this changes everything, everything about our lives. That the maker of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, sovereign sustainer of all things loves you. That's crazy. That, that should send chills up our spine every time we consider it. And Moses, who went up on that mountain to, to be in the presence of the Lord as the rep representative of his sinful, stiff-necked people down below. In verses 8 and 9, this is, this is how Moses responds to the Lord describing himself this way. It says, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He's worshiping God for who he is. And then he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. He's saying, God, I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. I want you to be with us for it is a stiff necked people, a hard headed people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So Moses is worshiping God for who he is. And then he repents of his sin and he repents of the sins of others as well. We live in a really individualistic society and culture and moment in time. But the, what we see here is, is Moses repenting on behalf of the people. Did Moses make the golden calf? Nope. Did Moses tell them to make it? No, he specifically told them not to make it. And then they did. And when Moses came down, he wasn't like, oh, cool, this is a good idea. I'll worship this calf too. If y'all don't know what Moses did, this is one of my favorite things because it's so bonkers. Moses took the golden calf, beat that thing into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people drink it. In his that's like an ultimate like dad rage. Like I I remember, I don't know how old our kids was or were, and I don't remember which one it was, but they didn't want to eat some beans on their plate. And then I stepped out of the room, you know, they're taking forever. And I come back, the beans are gone. They tell me they ate them, but then I see them half chewed up and spit out on the floor. And then in my dad rage moment, I told them to get down on the floor with their fork and eat them. I'm not proud of it, but Moses did it too. So I'm just, sorry. I say that as a joke, but a much better way for me to have responded in that moment would have been for me to pray for the heart of my kids, for them to see God as merciful and gracious, for me to pray for them that they would love God and love the truth and love telling the truth. I struggle to give my children grace if you haven't been able to tell that already. Moses identified with the people just as Jesus identifies with us. Church, if we get a hold of the heart of God, it's going to flip this place on its head. We're going to have to multiply and plant churches because we won't be able to keep people out of here. 
Your salvation is not just a personal thing. It, uh, it impacts every part of your life. It changes the way you interact and live in every, every sphere of your life. Your online presence, your neighborhood, your, your job, your friends, your family. It changes everything. If you continue reading through Exodus 34 and um, finish the book of Exodus, go into the book of Leviticus, like you're, you're going to read all the laws that God gave Moses and gave the nation of Israel. And it deals with everything how they worship, how they do business, how they treat women who've been sexually abused, how they treat immigrants, how they treat outsiders. Everything is included in in God's law. And we can't keep that law. And we don't have to keep that law. But Jesus summarized that law. He said, if you, the, the two greatest commandments are to love God and love people. Love God and love people. Are we at West Concord loving God and loving people well? Missing the heart of God hurts everyone. If we're not loving people in their sin, we are missing the heart of God. If we're not able to to love ourselves in our sin, we're missing the heart of God. That sounds like a really weird phrase, love yourself. It's like, man, don't live in the shame of your sin. Yes, feel the guilt that when you do something wrong, you should feel guilty for it. Repent of that and then move on because the blood of Jesus covers it. And when somebody wrongs you, if, if they're a believer, then remind them of the gospel. Forgive them. The blood of Jesus covers their sin too. And if someone is a non-believer and they're sinning against you, don't beat them up for their sin. Point them to the loving and merciful and gracious God and so that they can get to know him, so that they can then repent of their sin, and then they can live in obedience to him. And then you've made a friend, an eternal friend. Who, who do you need to talk to that you've written off because of something that happened in the past? Who do you need to reconcile with? Who do you need to pursue that you, you haven't given the time that they deserve as image bearers of God? What sources of information do you need to filter or remove from your life because it's causing you to be bitter and angry towards God's people? What do you, what do you need to forgive yourself for? And what misinformed view of God do you need to let go of? He he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So church, let us rest in that today and let it flow out of us this week. God, we thank you for the chance to be in this place this morning. We thank you for who you are and we thank you for your heart towards us. God, forgive us for the wrong views of you that we take and for how that then hurts our relationship with you and it hurts our our relationships with others. Help us to see you as merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And we love you and we praise you. Amen. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.